we are in a place of worship, and uh, we're really thankful for this place. I feel especially, as Shelby said, really thankful for it after being out of it for so long and, and not being with other people in this place to try to be as healthy as we could and be as, um, as good of a neighbor as we could. And this worship space is, is, um, is a great place to come and to gather and to share like-mindedness in the pursuit of something that all human beings share. That's a desire and a longing to connect to something greater than yourself. A desire and a longing to connect to the divine. And the ancient Jewish people had had the same thing as, as did other cultures and religions. And yet we see here Jesus coming in and disrupting a lot of what that was about. And in fact, he's even foreshadowing the end of this type of worship, this temple-based worship in Jerusalem. And as he does that, I have to question as I look at this text, well, so what does that mean for us? And, and then he goes on further uh, talking about a temple of the human body, first with himself, but as we continue to read in the New Testament scriptures, that same idea is given to us as well, that our bodies are temples, and that when we come together, we are living stones of a temple of where the Spirit of God dwells. So how do we get from this idea of worshiping corporately together to this disruption of that, of Jesus declaring, well, it's the human body first in me and then in you that is the place of worship. There's a lot of, lot of disruption here going on. So I want to talk about three things, really. The first being that we all need a place of worship. We all need this sort of sacred space. The second thing being that that space needs to be disrupted at different times as individuals and corporately. And then the third thing is what does it look like, especially in this passage and what Jesus is talking about here, when that disruption changes the definition of a temple and of the ideas around worship. Those are the three ideas. So just some really light conversation uh, this morning. Uh, let's, let's start here looking at this first verse where it says in verse 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So here we find that uh, Jesus is... Uh, moving along with the current of the Jewish calendar, with the festivals. He's following the ebbs and flows of the culture and the people that he is a part of. So even though, even though we'll talk in this very text that Jesus is a, a revolutionary, he's, he's somebody who disrupts the status quo, he does that from inside. He does that from within the traditions. And he finds ways to highlight and to move forward the conversation around this idea of God's presence with us. And like I said, we all, we all need a place of worship. We all need 
this sort of space, whether it be a physical space or a mental, emotional, and spiritual space. I can remember uh, when when uh, I was first married, when Becky and I were first married, and I would try to get out of the bed really quietly in the morning so that I wouldn't wake her up. And I would get out, and I would, I would be absolutely sure, like she's still breathing really hard, you know, and I'm like, I made it out, and I'm going to go drink my coffee, and I'm going to sit on the front step. I'm going to read my Bible or pray or do something like that. And then all of a sudden, boom, she was right there. <laughs> right next to me. And I'm like, how did she get up? She could sense that I was awake. Now, that doesn't happen anymore. We're, we're almost 10 years in. We got three kids. Nothing like that's happening anymore. But in the beginning, it was like that. And um, I found myself really frustrated. I found myself um, not knowing a lot about boundaries or anything like that. I just found myself really frustrated that the, I did not have that time and that space. And so I want us to think about this Before we come to the part where Jesus starts disrupting it and changing it and criticizing it, the importance that we all need to have this type of space, a sacred space for us as individuals and as as a corporate uh, body of people. For the Jews, it was this sacred pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So, Uh, The Jewish people from all different ethnicities, all different parts of the world would come here during the time of Passover, and they would come because the sacrifices and the connections and the communion that they could have with God was centered in Jerusalem and the temple there in Jerusalem. So they would come from all over the place, and when they got there, they were excited because they would get to connect with God in ways that according to the, the customs and the culture and the religion of the time were impossible anywhere else. So they were going to get to come and worship God, connect with God, connect with each other. And so it was a big deal. And it was something that people of all socioeconomic brackets would pilgrimage to do this thing. It was something to really look forward to and be excited about. And the Passover, this thing, the Passover, was the centering event that the Jewish people found their identity in. It was the idea that, that God, it wasn't the idea, it was the event that God took them out of an oppressive rule by the Egyptian people and established them a group of people who were slaves for 400 years called Hebrews, people of the dust, and established them as God's own people. And so when they came during this time, they were remembering these things. They were remembering who they were, and they were getting a chance through the rituals and the sacrifices to give a physical, experiential quality to those desires and longings in their hope, in their heart, to be connected to God, to be connected to one another, desires that we all have. And even more so, I, I hope that, that we've been able to feel that longing increase as we've been away from it for so long. So you might say, hey, you know, this sounds pretty good. Uh, it sounds like a pretty good thing, Jamin, the way you're describing it. So, you know, what's the problem here? 
Well, let's talk about what happens as it always and inevitably does go bad. When things that are meant for good, meant for connection with God, with one another, to reaffirm what we believe to be true about the universe goes bad. And, and as we get to those verses, here's, here's, here's how I want to, to summarize this idea. When we enter a space of worship and we partake in the liturgies, when we do the call and response, when we read the Apostles' Creed, when we sing songs and we worship together, we are acting out a different way of thinking about reality. That doesn't happen when we're outside, when we're somewhere else. We are reminding ourselves, refreshing our imaginations and our spirit about a deeper sense of reality, about a reality where things are connected, where there's not just isolated events, where things mean something and have great weight to them, a sacred space. So you can only imagine, just thinking about yourself and the things that you're prone to, that that wouldn't always work out well. It wouldn't always go that way, and sometimes things would get confused. Think about any of the ruts that you get in. Or maybe you started uh, eating right or working out or doing something like that because you wanted to improve your quality of life. But then somewhere along the way, it seemed like doing that thing was a way to measure your own worth. And it stopped being about being healthy and getting what you could out of life and living a wonderful life, but it became a source of self-judgment and self-critique and something that you carried more like a weight or an albatross around your neck or something like that. And we find that this is exactly what's happened here in the temple courts. Let's keep reading uh, verses 14 here. It says, In the temple courts, he, Jesus, found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts. I just want to pause there for a second because this story is in all the, all the gospel accounts. But John's account's the only one that tells us this detail of Jesus uh, finding some cords and braiding them into a whip. I don't see, you ever see any oil paintings of Jesus doing that? <laughs> like any like uh, black velvet paintings, you know, it's a portrait of Jesus just sitting down, like glowering at people angrily, like braiding a whip. Yeah, I'd like to see that one. That'd be a good one. Um, I wonder how long that took him, and I wonder what people were thinking as they watched him doing that. Like, surely this guy is not, maybe he's, you know, he, he's got a, a cow he's trying to, to wrestle up and get in here or something. Anyway, uh, so he made this whip of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So he's flipping tables, knocking coins off of tables. At this point, people don't even know really that much about who Jesus is. So this is, this is pretty crazy. Verse 16, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So people are coming to Jerusalem and they're there to celebrate Passover and to worship through sacrifice. Sacrifices were one of the main ways 
that people could worship God and feel connected to God in that way. So here's the thing. If you're coming from far away and you aren't some wealthy person with a big entourage, it might make more sense for you to find a sacrificial animal when you get to Jerusalem, right? I mean, are you going to carry some doves with you the whole way there on this big, long pilgrimage on your donkey? I mean, you could, but it would be pretty tough, or a cattle or a lamb and things like that. And you had to do the sacrifice there in Jerusalem. So, hey, these folks in the temple court said, hey, you got a problem, I got a solution. I can sell you what you need right here in the temple courts, and then you can go right in, be real convenient for you to go in there uh, after you buy your, your sacrificial animal from me and do that. And just so you know, as Christians, we think of sacrifices as pretty much one thing. We think of it mainly as like Jesus uh, being the sacrifice for our sins, but there was so much connected to this for these ancient Jewish people. There were, yes, um, certain sacrifices that were for a sin offering, um, but it was unintentional sin, and uh, that was that was cooked and eaten by the priests, but there were also burnt offerings. And you know what burnt offerings symbolized? Submission to God's will. So that offering was burnt all the way up, and it represented the person's desire or the family's desire to give everything they had to the will of God. That was something that many people were there to do. There was also a peace offering. So that offering was about uh, community and connection and thanksgiving. So if you just wanted to thank God for what you had and show gratitude, then you could give a peace offering. And that would mean that you would get give the offering and so it would literally be cooked by the priests, and then you and your family and your friends and even the priests would all eat the sacrifice together, a peace offering, an offering of gratitude. It's, it was like you were eating with and in the presence of God, which in the ancient culture to eat with someone was to be at peace with them, to be friends with them. And there was also a guilt offering, uh, and that was... Actually, if you weren't quite sure if you committed a sin or not, like if you, if you just wanted to kind of cover your bases, you could give this type of offering. And I share that with you because I want you to realize more of the fullness of what was at stake here for people. This was their opportunity, their chance to come to Jerusalem and to have these connections with God and with one another. And there was a deep longing and a desire to be able to do that. Here's the problem, though. You've got these folks selling these animals, and you have these money changers, and they're taking advantage of this. They're taking advantage of what people are needing to connect with God. Have you ever felt like that happened with you? That, that out of your honest longing and desire, somebody was taking advantage of that in a church or somewhere else, and actually um, getting something from you that you weren't trying to give. That was was happening to all these people here. See, those, those, uh, this is a great, like, lesson on capitalism here, right? It's like, hey, supply and demand. You need a sacrificial animal? I've got a sacrificial animal. But since you've got to come all this way 
you know, we, the price is going to be a little bit higher for your unblemished cow or your doves here um, to really, you know, incentivize things for me to even set this up and make this convenient for you. That was one of the problems. Prices were being jacked up for the sacrificial animals. In fact, we know from historical records that a rabbi who was uh, the son of uh, Gamil, who was alive during Jesus' time, he actually called for the temple uh, shops to drop their prices by 99% on the doves that were being sold. And guess what? The people who would have used doves for sacrifice were the poorest ones. So Jesus is looking here at this situation and he's saying, you are ripping people off. You are taking advantage of people because they want to connect with God, to connect with the divine, to feel like they are right with God. And that's a problem. The other situation that was going on was with those money changers. When you would come to Jerusalem uh, during Passover or whenever you could get there, there was something called a temple tax. And this goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. And the temple tax was a half of a shekel. Anybody know what that is? If you do, you know more than me. It was half of a shekel. And if you were coming from somewhere else, guess what you didn't have? Shekels. No shekels. Right? You had some kind of other foreign currency. And so you would come, because every, every little location had their own currencies. So you would come there, and the money changers would take your foreign uh, currency, and they would change it over for you into the temple half shekel. But, hey, there was another opportunity here. Because if you're coming all the way to Jerusalem, you might be staying for a while, and then you've got these, this currency that's not being used in Jerusalem uh, from wherever you're from, another part of, of the, the Near East. And so the, the money changers were like, hey, I can help you out here. I can change your money for you into a local currency here. But that's going to cost you too. There's going to be a little extra or a lot of extra in that process. You're going to lose a lot of money. And even more so, people coming from a long journey, they wouldn't have brought like a big old sack of coins of the lowest currency. They would have had their they're bigger monetary units, like their $100 bills, and they would need change for that uh, so that they weren't carrying a giant bag of pennies, basically, with them. And money changers were very happy to give them a, a, a break down their $100 bill into fives and ones and tens at a price. So Jesus is watching all of this unfold. And just like in our system, it's most expensive to be poor. So if you're the poorest person, you've got the least amount of options, and therefore these money changers and these folks selling sacrificial animals have the most leverage on you and can take advantage of you more than anything else or more than anyone else. Jesus sees all this, and he begins to, uh, to do something about it. He uses his whip. He drives the animals out. He knocks over the coins, flips the tables over. Uh, he yells at the folks and says, hey, you're turning this place into a market, market, this sacred space. He's disrupting the currency of worship. In the other accounts, he actually calls it a den of robbers. You've turned 
my father's house into a den of robbers. So he's driving this out, and he's about to say, hey, you know what? This whole system even is going to change. There's still going to be a temple. There is, but it's not going to look like this. It's not going to work like this. And he's not doing this on his own. See, we, sometimes we imagine Jesus coming in in a vacuum and doing these things, but he's standing on the shoulders of the prophets. This idea of the sacrificial system and connecting to God in this way sounds so outdated to us. And, of course, we're like, oh, yeah, of course you wouldn't sacrifice animals. But the prophets of old had something to say about it, too. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 1 uh, and verse 11. This is Isaiah speaking for God. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of uh, fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, I can't, cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Another prophet, Jeremiah 7, says, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say we are safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? So this, this comes right to our front door in this way. The prophets were, were, were illuminating a common human problem and a common human problem with worship. And that's when the thing that we're doing, the rituals that we're engaging in, the listening to a sermon, the participating in uh, spoken liturgies or songs, when those things become a mask or something we do perfunctory without thinking or feeling, and it just begins to uh, become something that uh, we do as a part of like our weekend routine and nothing more, then um, it's not changing our life. It's not changing our perspective anymore. And even further than that, what we see in this passage with Jesus is not only was it not changing their lives anymore for certain people, but it was actually beginning to mirror and mimic the world. So no longer were these rituals and liturgies, sacrifices, ways of communing with God, no longer were they representative of a deeper sense of reality, a connection with the divine. But they became, they became just another language to reproduce the same things that were happening everywhere else in the world. 
that the poor were being exploited, that the rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer, and all of that was being manipulated through religion and ritual and tradition. This hits very close to home. This, hit, this hits very close to home for, for where we are. With, um, when we think about uh, even the, um, the insurrection at the Capitol, and we saw flags that had a Confederate flag, uh, a Trump flag, and a Jesus saves flag all together. This is a form of religion that no longer breathes imagination and inspiration into a group of people showing that the kingdom of God is at hand, but it's one that is mimicking and intertwining into the same dog-eat-dog politics outside of it. Jesus not only disrupts this, but he points to something that can be done about it. Dr. King talks about this idea here. He says, if the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. And that's the case for much of the Christian church in America. We are, the church is without moral or spiritual authority in our culture because it just mimics sometimes the basis impulses of humanity. So, Jesus offers a solution of sorts. He says in verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So Jesus says, you want access to God. You want to have peace with God. I will, I will do that for you. I will be your access. I will bear your guilt and your suffering. I'll bear your pain. I'll take the question away from you whether or not that you sinned or not or these types of things. I will be that sacrifice. I will offer my body as the conduit This temple is corruptible and is corrupt. I will be something that is incorruptible. I will be that pathway for you to be with God. It's amazing because he is breathing new life into the concept of a temple, a sacred space. And he is elevating, not de-elevating this idea by saying it will be found in this human frame and in this form, in the human body, because that is indeed what Jesus had. Jesus, uh, the scriptures, the New Testament tells us, calls him the firstborn from the dead, our older brother, Jesus. And so when we think about Jesus saying his body is the temple, he will be our conduit. He will be our pathway into worship with God. He's also saying that of us. He's saying not only is my body a temple, but so is yours. So is yours. It's a place of worship. We can read about this as Paul uh, extrapolates this in 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 15, he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? 
But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? What does this do in this very real situation? You've got people traveling, people of different socioeconomics, different ethnicities, and they're treated differently. And there's different gatekeepers that are here. And Jesus is saying, I am going to break down these barriers. I'm going to create a space and a way to worship that is accessible to each one of you. And in very fact, this temple, this beautiful temple built by someone with a lot of power and corruption, uh, or added on to anyway by by King Herod, um, will no longer have to be your access point that you have a limited amount of access to. But in your very bodies, you can worship. You can know that you are sacred, that there is holiness accessible within you. This does not delegitimize the importance of a worship space, but it it raises it. And we see that in the inspiration of the writers as well of the New Testament, where they said things like, uh, 1 Peter said, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, your body is a temple. Your body, through Jesus Christ, is a house of the sacred, a house of worship, a house for God. That has incredible implications. Because if you can begin to recognize your body as something that holy and sacred, you might also begin to see that in others as well. You might begin to see how you treat yourself matters. That's the implication. What you do with your body matters. See, a lot of religions teach, and Christianity has been prone to teach this too, even though it's not actually here in the text, in the ethos, but treat the body as something just to, uh, some, some temporary thing, to house a spirit, and it's really just the spirit that matters. And yet we have a bodily resurrected Jesus. He's talking about it right here. He's saying what you do in and with your body matters. So that means it matters. What you eat, what you consume through media, it's what you say, how you care for yourself, what you do with yourself sexually, what you do with yourself intellectually, that these things matter. These are matters of faith, caring for yourself. It also has implications for one another. Because when we think about this temple, we think about it personally, but also we think about it communally. As Peter talked about, living stones in which the Spirit dwells amongst us. So even as you think about yourself and how you care for yourself, that has implications into how we care for one another and what happens corporately as we bring ourselves to this space, physically or metaphorically. 
This is an elevation of what it means to worship, of, of what it means to care for one another, that our bodies are temples. We all need a worship space. We all need to think about those ideas. We all need to engage in these practices. And here's what happened. This temple, this way of worshiping, began to look more like the basis instincts of human beings of greed and corruption than it did what it was made to represent. And Jesus breathed new life into the concept of the temple and of worship and said, in fact, worship is so essential and holy to you, I want to reorganize things to help you to understand through me, your body is a temple of worship. And when you gather together, you are creating a space of worship, all of you, no matter what your uh, ethnicity, your socioeconomics are, those types of things, that it needed to be disrupted. And so as we come to this worship space, and I get ready to close here, we come to a space that's different in this way as well. The, the ancient Jewish people, they came with sacrifices to give to God, to be made right with God. When we come to this table, we come to receive. We come in our worship to receive something from God, to come inside of us, to remind us of the sacred space that God has formed and created within us. How will this impact your life? How will these ideas shape something different out there for you? That your body is a temple, that we are a temple. Let's go ahead and pray together. Lord, thank you for a time of worship. Uh, thank you for the sacraments this morning, the song. And thank you for your word and this table that we get to come to. Fill our imaginations and our hearts. Amen.